Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 13th, 2010. It's Tuesday the 13th. Those Tuesday the 13th are almost as bad as those Friday the 13th. Well, not really, but <clears throat> when I say it, it sounds almost true. Well, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. You know what it is? My brain is fried. <laughs> I kid you not. Keeping up has been uh, really difficult since coming back from vacation. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Put your discernment caps on today, folks. Uh, today will be, uh, in hour number two, we're going to be doing our uh, entry number two, contestant Number two in our worst Easter sermon of 2010 uh, contest, we will be putting five contestants up and listening to and reviewing their sermons. And then at the end of the week, you get to decide. You get to vote. And uh, I will not um, I will not be uh, wagering myself. I have no idea how this is going to go, and I have no particular favorite. And today's... Um, uh, contestant is Rob Bell of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. That's right. The guy who's brought us such wonderful things as Rob Bell's Lectio Divina and, uh, and whose co-pastor Shane Hips basically says that all the religions of the world are like sailboats. And uh, they catch the winds of the Spirit. And Christianity isn't the only religion that catches the winds of the Spirit. But Christianity is probably the most efficient sailboat at catching the winds of the Spirit. But the, the important thing is not your boat. The important thing is the wind. Y yeah, that that's uh, his co-pastor. So uh, Rob Bell last week put out uh, some kind of a, I don't know what to call it, a poem about the resurrection set to music because you know rob bell he's not a rock star but he might as well be as far as his fame is concerned among the youth here in the united states and abroad because of his numa videos anyway i digress uh rob bell his little resurrection thing he actually used that as in part of his uh, sermon on Easter Sunday, and uh, we're going to be listening to his Easter Sunday sermon. And on the discernment scale, this one is a full-blown nine as far as difficulty is concerned. You're going to hear something that sounds 
remarkably close to the gospel, but isn't. Um, you're going to hear about resurrection. And then you're going to hear statements that are just like, what? <laughs> huh? And uh, so as a result of it, this one is slippery. This one is, um, well... This one slithers. This one, I'm telling you, you gotta, you, you gotta think hard and long about this particular sermon as we listen to it. And because of its subtlety, because of its slitheriness, because it's absolutely false doctrine, but sounds so close to the real thing. Yeah, that's why I put it in there. So not every contestant, you know, that makes it into our uh, worst Easter sermon of 2010 gets in there because uh, what they've preached is just so ridiculous, like yesterday's Avatar sermon. So I thought I would mix it up a little bit today. So today we're going to, on the program, we're going to be doing uh, a few news stories in this hour. And uh, let's see here, um, my program notes. Okay, got news about a woman, uh, Supreme Court ruling for a woman who was slain in the spirit. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, news, uh, there's been, there's an attempt to repeal the, in California, the same-sex marriage ban. Uh, there's, there's an attempt to repeal that. We've got news about that. I've got a great little, uh, bit here from Charles Spurgeon I want to read. And then we got news about the, uh, Together for the Gospel conference that just began today. And uh, and then news, uh, the Episcopal Church. You get they've got another gay priest on their uh, bishop candidates. So this would be another uh, openly homosexual uh, Episcopal bishop in the making here. And then uh, if we have time, discrimination against Christians in Britain continues. I got a piece here from Christianity Today that is discussing that. And so that's what we're going to cover today. I am. I'm. The, the, I think the moral of the story for me is is that um, don't take any time off. Just you know, I'm just <laughs> forget it. It's it was not a good idea. I'm I am still b- digging my way out from the pile that was uh, created by my absence. And uh, so anyway, so the moral of the story is I just shouldn't take any um, time off. Anyway, so. <clears throat> So there, and you'll notice I haven't updated Twitter and Facebook in a few days either. I haven't had time to get on Twitter or Facebook, but that's okay. I think I might get to it tonight. Anyway, so we're going to dive into the program proper today, and uh, let's dive into it. Here we go. From the Lansing State Journal in Lansing, Michigan, uh, headline reads, Supreme Court rules for woman in Mount Hope Church who was slain in the spirit. Now, this is interesting. I mean, what are you supposed to do? I mean, I mean, this calls into question whether or not this whole slain in the spirit thing is actually from the biblical Holy Spirit. Uh, Lansing, Michigan, the Michigan Supreme Court has reinstated a jury verdict for a local woman who sued Mount Hope Church after she was injured during a rally at the church. The court in an order uh, released uh, Thursday, reversed the Michigan Court of Appeals and ruled 5-2 to two in favor of Judith Dad. The ruling restores more than $200,000 is... $200,000 is... Oh, Roseboro. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, you know, no point in taking that out. This That's just going to stay. Okay. <laughs> Dollars is... 
Oh, boy. I'm losing my mind. Okay, so the ruling restores more than $200,000 in damages to Dad. Uh, Dad sued her pastor after she was injured while being slain in the spirit and falling backward after being overcome by the Spirit of the Lord during a rally at Mount Hope Church in Delta Township in 2002. Dad claimed that Pastor Dave Williams defamed her when she accused when he accused her of insurance fraud, faking her injuries, and renouncing her faith, a jury awarded her more than $317,000 in damages and for her injuries, as well as libel, slander, and, and false light in a 2007 trial. The Michigan Court of Appeals last year upheld Dad's negligence claim, which was worth $40,000, but reversed more than... Two, $273,000 in damages for libel, slander, and false light. It said Williams' statement might have been subject to uh, qualified privilege. The Supreme Court, however, disagreed, saying the jury's findings that Williams acted with malice negated the issue of qualified privilege. Qualified privilege allows someone with authority to make certain statements to members of an organization without being held liable. So now here's the uh, question at stake here. This whole slain in the spirit nonsense that goes on in uh, Pentecostal, charismatic, and uh, churches that claim that uh, they've they've restored the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, would the Holy Spirit cause someone to be slain in the spirit in church, fall backwards, and then, you know, seriously damage themselves? Where in the Bible do we have instances of people in church being slain in the spirit? It's not a practice of the church. And this is this is one of those things where I, I think cases like this, you know, like this one, prove that we've got a real problem here. And the problem is, is that this is not how the Holy Spirit acts. Why? I mean, seriously, I mean, this would be like the Holy Spirit well, let me put it to you this way. I can think of a story in the Bible where um, animals were hurt. Let me let me explain here. There's a story of Jesus, uh, you know, coming across uh, a man who was possessed by more than one demon. And in fact, there were so many of them, uh, the demons referred to themselves as legion. You know, it's in the scriptures. Look it up if you're not familiar with the story. So what happens is, is that Jesus is going to cast uh, lead this legion of demons out of this uh, man who is obviously under severe uh, spiritual affliction and possession at the hands of these unclean spirits. And what happens is, is that they say, oh, please, Jesus, don't send us to the abyss or wherever. Instead, cast us into the herd of pigs, a uh, herd of pigs in Israel. That's uh, that's not kosher, by the way. Um, so what happened is, is that Jesus did so. And legion, the legion of demons, went in to the pigs. The pigs went into a stampede, and the pigs threw themselves over a cliff into a sea, they drowned, and they died. So we do have instances in the scripture of animals being overcome spiritually, and that, that and their being overcome, uh, you know, led to their being slain, literally. 
damaged uh, to the point of death. But nowhere in the scriptures do we find human beings being overcome by the Holy Spirit to the point of them hurting themselves. I can think of another example in the Gospels, by the way. Uh, there's a story of a, of a father who has a son who was demon-possessed, and that demon, was, when it possessed him, was would throw him into the fire or into water in an attempt to kill him, to do him bodily harm. And Jesus cast that demon out of that kid while he was writhing on the floor in front of him. So I'm just kind of working this, kind of work this out with me here, okay? Nowhere in the scriptures do we have examples of the Holy Spirit overcoming somebody and that that being overcoming uh, led to, you know, in some ecstatic uh, experience of so-called worship or whatever or being overcome by the Spirit. Has it led to their bodily harm? Yet in the scriptures, we do have several examples of people who were overcome spiritually by unclean spirits, and that did lead to bodily harm and to death. So here we go. We've got a woman in Lansing, Michigan, who wanted, uh, basically won a damage case against her, as well as a libel suit, when she was injured while supposedly being slain in the spirit. The only thing I can draw from this is that the she might she might truly have been slain in a a spirit, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, God in human yeah, not God in human flesh, but God the the third person of the Holy Trinity doesn't overcome people in an ecstatic expression and then basically injure them as a result of it. We don't have any instances of that at all. Nowhere is this doctrine of slain in the spirit taught in the scriptures either. So anyway, it's cases like this that make me go, yeah, this whole practice of uh, of being slain in the spirit, yeah, not, not, not biblical. And based upon the, the bodily damage that's taken place, uh, she might have, it might have been a real spirit that uh, did slay her, but it wasn't the Holy Spirit. Okay, from Christianity Today, um, this is just a brief little piece here. Uh, I, by the way, uh, I, I currently reside in the middle of uh, Indiana at the moment. And, um, a few you know a year and a half ago i was uh, i was a resident of california and uh, back in november of what was it, 08 um i you know i voted for the uh uh the ban on homosexual marriage the constitutional amendment that outlawed same sex marriage in the state of california i voted to help put you know make that the law of the land help basically uh, put in a constitutional amendment to uh, that says no marriage is between a man and a woman, not between uh, Steve and Adam. I mean that that, that doesn't work that way. And uh, boy, the backlash of the gay community in California has been severe. And well, this is kind of interesting. I mean, I re- I remember reading a, a story just a couple of weeks ago that uh, the uh, those people who are 
um, pro-gay marriage in California were tr- basically trumpeting their, uh, the, you know, touting their uh, victory that they that they now had the support among the general population of California to uh, repeal the same-sex marriage ban. Well, th- that's not how it's looking out at that point. Here's a that says repeal of California same-sex marriage ban misses ba- uh, ballot. Sarah Pullman uh, Bailey, proponents of an effort to repeal California's ban on same-sex marriage, failed to get enough signatures to get the measure on the November ballot. Monday was the deadline for submitting nearly 695,000 signatures needed. A San Francisco federal court is weighing whether the U.S. Constitution prohibits Proposition 8, which was passed 52 to 48 percent in 2008, a vote that defined marriage as a union of a man and a woman. The court case is expected to uh, be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, according to Reuters. Um, The San Francisco Chronicle reports that volunteers supporting an initiative to outlaw divorce only collected 8,000 signatures of the um, 694,000 needed. So, uh, talk about a setback. I mean, uh, what we're talking about here is is that it, it didn't even make the ba- they didn't even get the signatures necessary to make it uh, be one of those initiatives. So, uh, this November, November of 2010, California, there will be nothing on the ballot as it pertains to uh, the repeal of the same-sex marriage ban. I guess chalk that up to good news, but the reality is, is that um, this is something I want to say. Okay, I've worked in politics. Okay, and I can tell you right now that uh, the the ban on same sex marriage in California, as well as in other states, that's a defensive posture that uh, folks are in there. And um, I, you know, I think over the long haul, it's just a matter of time before the society continues to basically decline morally to the point where people are going to say it's no big deal. Let's let's have same sex marriage. It's going to happen. and It's going to happen all over the place. Why? Because we're playing defense. How do you play offense as a Christian? How do we as Christians play offense? Okay. Answer, there's a well we've only got one offensive weapon. That's God's word, not our ability to vote, but our ability responsibility and freedom to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name. I I can tell you this. I I'm a firm believer that the reason why the United States and other western nations are in a moral tailspin is not has nothing to do with the fact that the wrong laws are in place. It has to do with the decline of gospel preaching in the church. As the church goes, so does the culture. When the church ceases to be a place where Christ and him crucified for our sins and the clarion call of the gospel of repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, when those go AWOL, when those go missing and they are replaced instead with really bizarre self-help, culturally relevant stuff, the end result is, is that the culture that we are called to be salt and light in will continue to morally decline. Why? Because human beings are by nature sinners and at war with God. So the Christian church can never take a break 
the Christian church doesn't get uh, the ability to say, you know, hey, we've got this under control now, God. So what we're going to do is we're going to, rather than preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, what we're going to do instead is we're going to, uh, we're, we're, we're gonna tell people how to have better marriages and, and, you know, and, and give them, you know, rock and roll laser light shows during uh, Easter because that's more relevant to them. See, when the church starts doing that, then what happens is, is that people remain in their sins. And what do sinners do by nature? They sin. And sin is one of these things where, um, this rebellion against God, it's not a static thing. It's not something that just is in stasis. Uh, what happens is, is that there's a, you could, it's almost, what happens with uranium? Uranium, you know, has this half-life cycle where it decays and eventually uranium goes from being this radioactive substance. It starts losing, uh, protons or uh, whatever. And eventually it becomes lead. That's what happens to uranium. Okay, so there's a decay cycle with uranium. There's a decay cycle with cultures too. Okay, and uh, the decay cycle, it, well, we're, we've been looking at it. Okay, but keep in mind, uh, what is it that hastens that decay cycle? The lack of gospel preaching, because by nature we're all sinners, and sin continues to get worse and worse and worse. And worse, a continual lust for more of it, if you would. So that's that's the that's the thing, a sin. So the sins that uh, were committed by the baby boomers, <laughs> those are nothing compared to the sins that uh, we Gen Xers are committing. And the sins that we Gen Xers are committing, <laughs> that's going to be nothing compared to the next uh, generation of kids coming up to the ranks. So how do you put an end to that? Well, first of all, that's not our goal. Putting an end to the decline in culture is not our goal. Our goal is to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name and pray that God will literally regenerate, give, you know, give birth to born again status here, uh, to rebellious sinners. And what happens is, is that through the preaching of the gospel, God takes rebellious sinners and turns them into sanctified saints. Saints who abide in Christ. Saints who want to do the will of the one who saved them. Saints who struggle with their sin and fight against their sinful nature. Saints who morally provide the backbone and the structure for our culture. You see, all of the things that we've enjoyed here in the Western, in the West, have been built. Uh, basically, we're banking off of uh, the inheritance given to us by the Judeo-Christian worldview, by the proclamation of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And in reality, right now, the United States, as well as much of Western Europe and other Western cultures, they're slipping back into hedonism. They're slipping back into rank paganism, and eventually they're going to not only slip back into rank hedonism and paganism, they're going to, they're going to eventually uh, resurrect governmental structures that are very compatible with hedonism and paganism. Think Caesar. That's where we're heading. So how do you put an end to it? 
well, I, again, that's not our goal. But the only hope we have of turning this around is for Christians to stop focusing in on the stupid and the banal. To stop engaging in these stupid marketing games of trying to basically market Jesus based upon what's in it for the for the people uh, who are listening. You know, giving basically benefits that Jesus is supposed to offer to make your life better. And instead, go back to preaching prophetically. Preaching prophetically requires you to preach both law and gospel. You preach God's law in order to show people their sinfulness and show them to be guilty before a holy and just God. And then you preach Christ and him crucified for our sins and the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross to give us our only hope. And it's through the preaching of law and gospel that God regenerates lost sinners, that God saves lost sinners, that God draws people to himself and that he sanctifies them, gives them the basically gives them the Holy Spirit as an inherit as a as a basically a guarantee of their inheritance soon to come. Takes them from being lost, sinful, rebellious people and turns them into saints who are struggling with and wrestling with their sinful flesh on a daily basis and keeping it in check. Without that, there is no long-term hope, either in California or any other state where a political battle has taken place to flip over the laws that were permitting gay marriage. Those laws that permit that basically outlaw gay marriage right now, they will all eventually fall. All of the wins that have been won in these different states regarding gay marriage are temporary at best. And where we need as Christians to spend our time is not just Listen carefully. Trying to fight this thing politically. We must fight it politically. But the majority of our efforts need to be geared towards proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name so that we will be ambassadors of the kingdom of God with the message of reconciliation, announcing to the world that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. That's how we fight the homosexual battle. That's how we fight the battle against uh, uh, that basic uh, against the problems of divorce and other things like that. All of those things are taken care of in the proper time, in the proper place, under the cross. But if all you're trying to do is engage in behavior modification or pass laws only as far as trying to curb the evils of society only through the first use of the law, that's a losing battle. Christianity didn't conquer Rome by trying to figure out how to restore the Roman Senate and pass laws against Roman bathhouses. They conquered Rome by placarding Christ, placarding Christ, placarding Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins. That's where we need to spend our time. And maybe, just maybe, we Christians 
who do that, maybe, just maybe, God will give us not a reformation or a second or third or fifth great awakening or anything like that, but will grant that the gospel reigns will again fall and give us a reprieve with growing number of people repenting and trusting in Christ. Maybe, just maybe. But I can tell you this, there is no other way than that. And the reason why the culture is falling apart, it's our fault because the church is falling apart and the church has ceased to do its job. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. ears are scratched here you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate christian radio we'll be taking your false doctrine now made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe, catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! Want to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't be sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, 
When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself? Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Christianity is not promoted via politics. You don't legislate somebody into the kingdom. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says uh, donate. The other says uh, join our crew. Uh, we're still uh, we're still quite a bit shy of our goal of a thousand listeners who've joined our crew. If you haven't done so, please please do so. The way you do it is by clicking on the join our crew button on our website, and what you're doing is signing up to automatically contribute six dollars and ninety five cents every month to Fighting for the Faith. It's a it's a small contribution. But it means a lot when multiplied over a thousand uh, listeners, because a thousand listeners ensures that we're able to pay our, all of all of our bills every month. Now, currently, uh, I got to tell you, we're operating in the red. Yeah, that's right. We have a little bit of reserves, but uh, uh, we have. Um, well, let's just put it this way: uh, we're currently operating in the red, and we're burning through the reserve cash that we have. So, if you haven't joined our crew yet, this is a good time to do so. And, of course, if you'd like to contribute uh, the amount of your choosing, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, continuing with our program here today. Oh, what do I want to talk about now? Um, hang on a second here. You know, since we're on the uh, gay issue here... Talk about a church that isn't doing their job. The Episcopal Church, they've completely, um, they're, they're, they're basically out at sea without a moral rudder because they've abandoned God's word. And uh, the uh, Christian Post story, that is, the headline reads, Episcopal Diocese of Utah names gay priest among bishop candidates. I'm sure the Mormons there are just going to love that. Uh, Josh, this is by Joshua Goldberg, who is a Christian Post reporter. The uh, the story reads: an Epis- The Episcopal Diocese of Utah has chosen four priests to stand for election as its next bishop, including an openly gay canon from the Episcopal Diocese of California. Announced Friday, the four candidates will vie to succeed Bishop Carolyn Tanner Irish, who since 1996 has uh, served as the tenth Episcopal Bishop of Utah and the denomination's first woman uh, woman bishop west of the Potomac. Though relatively small, encompassing some 25 congregations and representing about 5,000 uh, 5, 5, Episcopalians? Five, <laughs> what? So this will be a small bishop. Uh, you know, basically, I mean, we're uh, talk about a denomination that's just a train wreck. 5,000 of them left in uh, Utah. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the size of a Saddleback small group, isn't it? I didn't know that the leaders of a Saddleback small group were actually uh, bishops. <clears throat> Sorry. I digress. My thinking was, uh, was uh, thrown off track there by that wimpy small number. However, the diocese will likely draw the attention of the Anglicans worldwide, worldwide as it has paved a way for Reverend Canon Michael Barlow uh, to become the denomination's third openly gay bishop. See, this isn't what's, what's happening in the Episcopal Church. Folks, real simple. The Episcopal Church bought into modernism and basically a long time ago decided to become relevant okay this is how this starts 
They wanted to be relevant to the culture. They didn't want to offend the culture. They didn't want to um, be seen as, as stupid in the eyes of the culture. So they caved on biblical authority. They caved on uh, on evolution. They caved on, on, on everything. They gave up the whole farm. And now what, what do you have left in the Episcopal Church? It, an openly apostate and corrupt and immoral church. I mean, seriously. Here they're talking about having their third openly gay, unrepentant, homosexual bishop. Yet homosexuality, according to God, is a sin every bit as much as lying is a sin, as stealing is a sin, as much as adultery is a sin, as much as divorce. You see what I'm saying here? But they don't have a moral leg to stand on anymore because they bit the bullet. They're going the way of the United States' culture. They are exactly at the same moral temperature as the United States' culture is. Why? Because they're no longer salt. They're no longer light. They're no longer proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. And instead, they're off in la-la land. Oh, we have, we believe that God's doing a new thing. Who cares what the Bible says? God's doing a new thing. What's the new thing that God's doing? It just so happens that the new thing that God is doing is also the thing that's happening in the greater culture around us. Really, what would that be? Well, you know, an abandoning of morals and, and basically embracing what traditionally would be viewed as immoral behavior. But we in our new and enlightened state, in our new emergent way of thinking, have discovered that with a lesson <laughs> You know, monogamy, who needs that? Heterosexuality, that's a, you know, that's, and homosexuality, who cares about any of that? <sighs> Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and tie yourself to the mast of God's word. Don't let anyone cut you down either. Little pirate lingo there. Okay, let's see here. Uh, just last month, the Episcopal Church confirmed the election of its second openly gay bishop, the Reverend Canon Mary. Douglas Glasspool, who was elected in December to the office of Bishop Suffragan, Suffragan in the Diocese of Los Angeles. Her election follows that of the Reverend V. Jean Robinson, whose election as the Episcopal Church's first openly gay bishop in 2003 strained relations, relations between the U.S. Anglican arm and the rest of the worldwide Anglican communion. Following Glasspool's confirmation, uh, the spiritual leader of the Anglican Communion, Communion, Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said it was regrettable that the appeals from the Anglican Communion bodies for continuing gracious restraint have not been heeded. Yeah, you know, um, Rowan Williams is not pure as the wind-driven snow either. He, um, he's got all kinds of problems there. Talking about Great Britain, um, let's see here. Got a story from the Christ, from Christianity Today. Discrimination against Christians in Britain? Yeah, there's a question mark in the headline. In Britain? Yeah, by Jeremy Weber. Um, British newspapers are reporting an unprecedented, sh unprecedented showdown between the Church of England and the nation's second highest court over whether UK Christians are discriminated against in the workplace for their beliefs regarding homosexuality, among other issues. I covered this last week in this sense. Uh, our, the Archbishop of Canterbury basically told the uh, Christians to, you know, stop complaining because they're not really being persecuted. 
the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Lord Carey, and other bishops have demanded that, that, that certain court of appeals judges stand down from future religious discrimination cases because their recent rulings demonstrate a lack of understanding of Christian beliefs. The Anglican leaders uh, want such appeals to be judged instead by a panel of judges with expertise on religious issues. Uh, the next hearing will be this Thursday when Christian relationship counselor Gary McFarlane will appeal his firing for refusing sex therapy to homosexual couples. Last week, Christian nurse Sh Shirley Chaplin lost her appeal to wear a crucifix around her neck, uh, neck in hospital wards. The Court of Appeal decided last December that under existing equity laws, equity laws, by the way, equity, uh, the right of the rights of homosexuals take precedence over the rights of Christians to express their faith. Okay, let me read that sentence again. This is important. By the way, this is coming to the United States. Just give it time. You're sitting there going, yeah, we know you're right, Chris. Well, what should we do about it? Preach the gospel. Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Trust me, that's where we want to spend our time. You can go you, go to your tea parties and do all your, you know, do all that kind of stuff. If you know, I know. Listen, patriotism. I'm all for the fact that we as Christians are dual citizens. But keep in mind, your political gains will all be lost over time because at, you know it's like building a sandcastle right at the shoreline, and you know the and the high tide's coming. Good luck into keeping that castle, you know, from being knocked over by the waves. How do you? Fight it, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. I'm serious. If you haven't started doing it yet, you really ought to consider it. <clears throat> Not just consider it, start doing it. Get, you know, I know it's going to be awkward at first, but you know, get out there and trust me. That's the thing that needs to happen. And if you have a pastor who's not doing that, you need to get rid of him, and you need to find a pastor who will actually proclaim the gospel. Okay, let's see here. Um, okay, so the Court of Appeals decided last December that under existing equity laws, the rights of homosexuals take precedence over the rights of Christians to express their faith. The ruling came during the failed appeal of Christian registrar Lillian Ladeel over her firing for refusing to conduct civil partnership ceremonies. So in other words, in Great Britain now, Great Britain is basically saying, all right, you Christians, you want to, we've got these equity laws now, and if you don't toe the line, you're going to lose your job and you're going to, you're going to end up with you know, legal battles and you're going to have to pay court fees and you might even do some time in prison. Who is God in this situation? Well, the British government has set themselves up. You see, Christians can obey governments as long as they don't command them to sin. Now the British government is making it clear that they're commanding Christians. They don't care about their faith. In some senses, the British government is commanding Christians to sin. In, the, in that situation, what's a Christian to do? Obey God. <clears throat> Let's continue. Let's see here. In a March 28th letter, Lord Carey and five current and former Anglican bishops said that the religious rights of the Christian community are being treated with disrespect. Current Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, countered soon after, saying, we need to keep our own fears in perspective uh, compared to the persecution experienced by Christians in other nations. 
Uh-huh. Yeah, the BBC examined the issue Easter Sunday in a special report. Even human rights activists and Muslims see a problem. Yeah, I, I do too, because at this point, if you're going to command Christians that they have to give marriage counseling to homosexual couples or command Christians that they have to perform religious uh, ceremony, uh, conduct civil partnership ceremonies for homosexuals, I'm sorry. We Christians obey God, not governments. And when your government tells Christians to disobey God and to sin, the Christian response is, sorry, we have a higher source that we're accountable to. And so are you. Repent and believe the gospel. (sighs) Anyway, all right, so uh, let's see here. Moving along. There's a lot of little things I want to talk about today. I got all these things added up. Okay, today, by the way, the uh, the TE4G 2010 conference that's together for the gospel is uh, kicks off today in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, uh, conservative pastors. Uh, the headline, by the way, is uh, pastors, theologians to reaffirm the unadjusted gospel of Christ. Conservative pastors and theologians will convene in Louisville, Kentucky, starting Tuesday for a biennial conference to reaffirm the central doctrine of the Christian faith. With the theme of the unadjusted gospel, this year's Together for the Gospel conference is expected to draw thousands of pastors and church leaders who believe preachers need to proclaim the good news as it is. Yeah, by the way, I'm not, I wasn't able to attend, but I completely agree. I, this, I'm all, in fact, I'm, I'll probably end up playing some of the uh, keynote addresses from t- this year's uh, T4G uh, on Friday at Light Editions of Fighting for the Faith coming up. Just want to let you know that. Um, okay. Uh, uh, Jesus Christ, quote, Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, proclaims a message that's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So should we. The three-day conference will feature prominent speakers, including Pastor John MacArthur of Grace Community Church in Southern California, Pastor John Piper of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Dr. Al, uh, Dr. R. Albert Muller, Jr., President of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, among others. Uh, first held in 2006, the biannual event seeks to encourage pastors to stand together for the gospel. The conference came out of a concern that many churches worldwide are misrepresenting or marginalizing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yeah, including Rick Warren. I just want to let you all know that. Uh, John Piper needs to pay closer attention to what Rick Warren is preaching. Uh, Through the event, pastors aim to help each other reaffirm the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Quote, Compromising of the gospel has led to the preaching of of false gospels, the seduction of many minds and movements, and the weakening of the church's gospel witness, asserts the T4G statement of affirmations and denials. T4G leadership also notes the growing tendency among churches to substitute technique for truth, therapy for theology, and management for ministry. Great line. Absolutely true. As in previous uh, uh, moments of theological and spiritual crisis in the church, we believe that the answer to this confusion and compromise lies in a comprehensive recovery and reaffirmation of the gospel and in Christians banding together in gospel churches that display God's glory in this fallen world, reads their statement. In its affirmation of beliefs, T4G upholds the Bible as the sole authority for the church, the Holy Scripture as verbally inspired, inerrant, infallible, and totally sufficient and trustworthy. Amen. It also affirms the centrality of expository preaching in the church. Amen. 
the doctrine of the Trinity, amen, Jesus as being true God and true man, salvation that is only by grace, and salvation that comes through believing and confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Mm -hmm. To open up the event Tuesday, Pastor Mark Deaver of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., will deliver a message entitled, The Church is the Gospel Made Visible. Moeller, one of the nation's most pro uh, prominent evangelical figures, will speak Tuesday evening and present a message called, How Does It Happen? Trajectories Toward an Adjusted Gospel. And the conference will end Thursday afternoon with C.J. Mahani, uh, Mahaney, who heads uh, Sovereign Grace Ministries, speaking about expository faithfulness. Keep, keep posted. I think that sounds like a great event and uh, one that I will look forward to uh, hearing the audio from uh, sometime here in the near future on Fighting for the Faith. Okay. Now, one last thing. Um, one of my favorite Calvinists. I, I do enjoy uh, Calvinists. I'm, I'm a Lutheran and, uh, you know, I'm not a Calvinist. I just want to let you all know that I'm not a Calvinist. But I find Spurgeon uh, at times to be brilliant and at other times to I just want to shake my head, but that's just because I'm a Lutheran. That being the case, I found something that I think is absolutely great. Um, the name of this one it actually comes from the Pyromaniacs blog, and the name of the uh, the post is Hold Your Banner High. And uh, every week at the Pyromaniacs blog, they devote a, sex, a space in, in their uh, blog for uh, quoting Charles Spurgeon, and this one is particularly good. Here's what Charles Spurgeon writes about Hold Your Banner High. The Church of Christ desires not to be associated with other armies or to be mistaken for them. For it is not of this world, and its weapons and its warfare are far other than those of the nations. God forbid that followers of Jesus should be mistaken for political partisans or ambitious adventurers. The Church unfurls her ensign to the breeze that all may know whose she is and whom she serves." This is of the utmost importance at this present when crafty men are endeavoring to palm off their inventions. Good stuff. We continue. Every Christian church should know what it believes and publicly avow what it maintains. It is our duty to make a clear and distinct declaration of our principles that our members may know to what intent they have come together and that the world also may know that what we mean. Far be it from us to join with the broad church cry and furl the banners upon which our distinctive colors are displayed. We hear on all sides great outcries against creeds. Are those clamors justifiable? It, it seems to me that when properly analyzed, most of the protests are not against creeds, but against truth. For every man who believes anything must have a creed, whether he write it down and print it or not. Or if there be a man who believes nothing or anything or everything by turns, he is not a fit man to be set up as a model. Attacks are often made against creeds because they are a short, handy form by which the Christian mind gives expression to its belief, and those who hate creeds do so because they find them to be weapons as inconvenient as bayonets in the hands of British soldiers have been to our enemies. They are weapons so destructive to theology that it protests against them. For this reason, let us be slow to part with creeds. Let us day, let us today hold of God's truth with iron grip and never let it go. 
After all, there is a Protestantism still worth contending for and a gospel worth dying for. There is a Christianity distinctive and distinguished from ritualism, rationalism, and legalism, and let us make it known that we believe in it. Up with your banners, soldiers of Christ. This is not the time to be frightened by the cries against contentious convictions, which are nowadays nicknamed sectarian and bigotry. Believe in your hearts what you profess to believe. Proclaim openly and zealously what you know to be the truth. Be not ashamed to say such and such things are true, and let men draw the inference that the opposite is false. Whatever the doctrines of the gospel may be to the rest of mankind, let them be your glory and boast. Display your banners and let those banners be such as uh, as the church of old carried. Unfurl the old primitive standard, all the victorious standard of the cross of Christ, in very deed and truth, in hoc signo vinces, in this sign you will conquer. The atonement is the conquering truth. Let others believe as they may or deny as they will, for the truth as it is in Jesus is the one thing that was won your heart and made you a soldier of the cross. Good stuff. Okay, we are up on our second break, and uh, when we come back, we're going to be listening to a very difficult-to-discern sermon from Rob Bell, contestant number two in this year's 2010 contest uh, for the worst Easter sermon of 2010. Rob Bell of Rob Bell's uh, Mars Hill Bible Church will be our contestant, and his sermon entitled Resurrection. Not an easy one to discern. You don't want to miss it. And uh, I'm going to have to be engaging in some uh, pretty severe Bible teaching in order to correct some of the things that are off on this thing. But that's our contestant number two, so you don't want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk to you about auto insurance. As the father of two teenage drivers, I know how expensive auto insurance can be. But as expensive as auto insurance is, it's nothing compared to the cost of not having it when you need it. 
That's why I'm excited to have Allstate Insurance as one of Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertisers. Did you know that drivers who switched to Allstate saved an average of $396 per year compared to what they were paying other companies? Now, I don't know about you, but I think $396 is a lot of money in these tough economic times. Why don't you give Allstate a call and see how much they can save you? You can reach them toll-free at 877-246-1511. Again, that's 877-246-1511. The good folks at Allstate will be happy to give you a free quote over the phone. And remember, you're in good hands with Allstate. The spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website... PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. We have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit PirateChristianRadio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the web banner, and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. Sermon review time. Contestant number two in our annual uh, worst Easter sermon of the year oh, well contest contestant number two is Rob Bell of Mars Hill Bible Church you gotta listen real carefully on this one some slippery stuff good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Mars Hill Bible Church, Grand Rapids, Michigan, where Rob Bell of Numa fame is one of the teaching pastors. He happens to be a co-teaching pastor with Shane Hips. We've reviewed Shane's work here in the past. And Shane is a universalist and a mystic. And uh, definitely a twister of God's word. Well, Rob Bell, he's a little more subtle in his Bible twisting. And uh, you're going to have to listen really carefully to this sermon. What you're going to have to listen for is how Rob Bell draws conclusions from Christ's resurrection that are not stated in Scripture. Rather than going what the scripture says regarding eschatology and things of that nature, Rob Bell isn't engaging in real Bible teaching. 
he's preaching about a platitude called resurrection. So you got to listen real carefully. And I'll point stuff out along the way that is problematic. You're going to need to pay close attention. Did I mention that you're going to need to pay close attention? I recommend that you, um, well, you know, pay close attention. So without any further ado, let's kill that music. Its music is gone. Here is uh, Rob Bell of uh, Mars Hill Bible Church. The name of the sermon is Resurrection. We have a story that we are living in and telling today. We have been through Lent. We have been through Good Friday. And it is Resurrection Sunday. It is the first day of a new week. It is... An epic sort of story. Let's make sure that we all have a sense of the story it is that we are celebrating. In Luke 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. The men were sleeping in. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, as you do when somebody is dead and then later not dead. <laughs> Wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. <laughs> yeah, now... General human experience, I know for me and I assume for you and for billions of others, when people are dead, they generally stay dead. That's the way it works. This story centers around he's dead, but now he's not dead. He's not here. He has risen. Resurrection raises provocative questions about how the world works, because for most of us, we are quite solid on the fact that this is how it works. Resurrection says, really? It does? Okay, listen, did you catch that first point? Resurrection raises provocative questions about how the world works? Huh? Really? Already we're heading down the wrong path, and it's right out of the chute. If you missed this little derailment, uh, actually, this derailment is not the right way of putting it. Imagine we're a train heading down the tracks, and what's happened is is that we've been just thrown onto a sidetrack. If you miss the 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 sidetrack thing being thrown and and us being diverted onto a different track, uh, it was subtle and it happened rather quickly and abruptly. But there it is, right there. Resurrection raises provocative questions about how the world works. Really. Let's continue with Rob Bell. I don't know. You didn't see that coming, did you? He isn't here. Because you assumed that when he was dead, he'd be dead. But he was dead and now he's not. So what else does this mean? The rug has pulled, bit, pulled out from underneath the death sort of belief. What else is in there? He isn't here. Now... When we talk about resurrection, he isn't here. He has been resurrected. When we talk about resurrection, let's make clear what resurrection is. Because for some, perhaps you could say it like this. Sometimes resurrection gets confused with what happens after dying. And so when people talk about resurrection, what they are talking about is life after you die in this life. Resurrection. Well okay, did you hear that? Oh, man. 
Listen to how he's redefining it. He's saying that if you think that resurrection is something that happens to you after this life, you're missing the whole thing. Let me back this up. This is critical. Okay, here we go. Just a few seconds. About resurrection. Let's make clear what resurrection is, because for some, perhaps you could say it like this. Sometimes resurrection gets confused with what happens after dying. And so when people talk about resurrection, what they are talking about is life after you die in this life. Resurrection, while it may include that, transcends simply a discussion about life after death. So when we gather, we aren't just gathering to talk about, hey, after you die, you keep living. That wouldn't have been a terribly unique conversation or truth 2,000 years ago, as today it is not a terribly unique truth. When we talk about resurrection... Okay, going to point something out here. When we talk about our resurrection, we're talking about a future thing. It doesn't occur the moment that you die. It occurs when Christ returns. That's when we are resurrected. That's what the Bible teaches. So what he's doing here is he's engaging in kind of a form of deception here by confusing things. The Bible, when, we, when Christians talk about our resurrection, we're not talking about what happens to us after we die. We're talking about us actually being physically raised from the dead uh, and in, in bodies that last forever when Christ returns. That's what we're talking about biblically when we talk about resurrection. Notice what he's doing. He's saying if resurrection is you talking, basically talking about what ha- that you keep on living after you die, no one has, I don't know anyone who makes that case. Resurrection, we are talking about something very specific at the heart of the Christian story, something that both includes but goes way beyond simply, oh, there's death after, there's life after death. Notice when Jesus... In a few of one of his resurrection experiences later, touch me and see, he says to his disciples, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now, listen very carefully to how what he's doing here. We're going to correct this here in a second. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? (laughs) When you die and rise again, you work up a phenomenal appetite. Some of you are like, ah, yes, I know of what you speak. Jesus is hungry. His post-resurrection appearances are identified and characterized by very flesh and bones and blood. And do you have anything to eat sort of details? Now, when he does appear to Mary, she thinks he's the gardener. When his disciples are walking to Emmaus, they walk the whole way and they don't know that it's him. Okay, we're going to go into both these passages in just a second. I'm going to let you hear his wrongful telling of what's going on here. Here we go. When he stands among them, it is not until he gives thanks and breaks the bread that they recognize it's him. So when you hear somebody say, no, no, it's a literal bodily resurrection, it has to be. Well, okay, we'll go with you on that, but. Nick, remember, the but erases the thing before it. It's a different sort of physicality because the people who were with him the most and knew him the best do not recognize him at first. Are you Okay. 
It's a different physicality. Let me read to you from the Road to Emmaus story. That very day, two of them, this is from Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Their eyes were kept from recognizing them. It doesn't say that Jesus was had a different kind of physicality, and yet you know, those of you who are talking about him being literally raised from the dead, you know, well, yeah, but you got to understand it's a different physical. No, that's not what the text says. It says that their eyes were kept. And let me uh, let me pull this up in the Greek here. I want to see something here. Okay, Luke twenty four. But their eyes were kept. From recognizing him. Okay, 16. Okay, their eyes, but their eyes of them um, were taken possession, were grasped, were held um, so that they could not know who they were looking at. Okay, um, okay, so the Greek there, by the way, um, the, the, the Greek is um, uh, krateo, and it's... Um, it means that it basically says that their eyes were held, their eyes were grasped, their eyes were taken hold of or taken possession of. So the fact that the disciples on the road to Emmaus didn't recognize Jesus is due to the fact that Jesus performed a miracle. And it says in Luke twenty four sixteen that the disciples' eyes were held. They were taken a hold of. They were grasped so that they couldn't recognize Jesus. It does not say that Jesus had a different physicality. And that means that. And so when we talk about resurrection, you know, listen, don't get hung up on this bodily resurrection thing. It was a different physicality because they didn't recognize him. It says in the text, their eyes were held. Okay. Let's take a look at the Mary one. I think that's in Matthew. Hang on a second here. We've got to find it. In John chapter 20, we're going to look at at it starting from verse 11. Here's what it says. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stopped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there uh, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and the other at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, so what is Mary doing? She's weeping. I Okay, when you weep, you know, I've wept before. When you weep, I mean, you could barely see because of the huge crocodile alligator-sized tears pouring from your face and your eyes. You can't see. She's not in her right mind. She's weeping. Where have they taken my Lord? Uh, and she's weeping. Okay, she turns around and sees, she sees Jesus. But here's the deal. The, the, when we re- keep reading, you're going to find out that she's not facing him directly. So she turned and see, she sees Jesus, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? 
supposing Jesus to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. So when you read this story in context, it's not that Jesus had a different physicality and people couldn't recognize him. In in one instance, it says the disciples on the road to Emmaus, their eyes were held. They were grasped so that they couldn't uh, recognize Jesus. Here in John chapter 20, Mary doesn't turn all of the way to see Jesus. She thought he was the gardener. She's weeping. Her eyes are not capable of really paying attention to all the details. That's not even her frame of mind. And when Jesus says to her, Mary, then she turns and she sees Jesus and and says to him, Rabboni. It's not that Jesus had a different physicality. It's that Mary, what did, what, she was in no condition to pay attention to what's going on. She didn't expect Jesus to be there. She thought he was the gardener because she never fully turned to see him. And she doesn't fully turn to see him until after Jesus calls her name. So what, what Rob Bell is doing here is a classic liberal lie. Okay. Let me play it again. I'm going to back it up because you need to hear what he's doing. He's deconstructing Christ's bodily resurrection and basically redefining it as Jesus being raised in a different physicality. This borders on heresy, if it isn't already rank heresy. Let's listen. And do you have anything to eat sort of details? Now, when he does appear to Mary, she thinks he's the gardener. When his disciples are walking to Emmaus, they walk the whole way and they don't know that it's him. When he stands among them, it is not until he gives thanks and breaks the bread that they recognize it's him. So when you hear somebody say, no, no, it's a literal bodily resurrection, it has to be. Well, okay, we'll go with you on that, but it's a different sort of physicality because the people who were with him the most and knew him the best do not recognize him at first. Are you with me? Boy, for somebody who's supposed to be this brilliant Bible teacher, the text just absolutely proves him wrong. So it's not that Jesus rose bodily from the grave and it's a literal bodily resurrection. It's that Jesus had a different physicality. You have any problems with that? I do. So whatever it is, it's something, it is some sort of new, transformed physicality. They do not know it's him until he speaks, Mary, I'm not the gardener. Doesn't really say that. Mary. Then she knows it's him. To the disciples on the road to Emmaus, it isn't till later that they realize we walked the whole way. So apparently he was able to carry on conversations in which they still couldn't tell it was him until later and then they it says their eyes were held or grasped so they couldn't under they couldn't recognize him problem was wasn't with Jesus is that he was performing a miracle making it so that they wouldn't know who he was he didn't have a different physicality they're like oh were our hearts not burning within us so whatever it is it is some sort of new transformed and yet at the same time physicality 
This is key. Resurrection does not mean disembodied evacuation to some other place. It's about... Okay, notice the, uh, this is a straw man. Who says resurrection is a disembodied evacuation to some other heavenly place? That's not what the Bible teaches. Out this world, this life, and it's physical. Maybe you could say it this way. Next slide. In 1 Corinthians 15, for what I received, the writer Paul says, I passed on to you as of first importance. So I only have a few words here to try and summarize what you need to know. You need to know that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. There's a big story here that had been talking about this all along. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters. Okay, now you just heard him preaching a text that teaches the gospel, but what does he do with it? At the same time, most of whom are still living. So he said he he appeared, he was present, and if you have questions, some of them are still alive. They were there, they would be happy to talk about what they experienced here now among us. Next slide. Maybe you can say it this way. The resurrection is not about somewhere else, but it's about here. He's not a ghost. He's a man. See my hands okay. and feet. He's, he's not. Watch what he's doing here. The resurrection. Oh, man. Now he's drawing eschatological conclusions from the resurrection that are contradicted by, by clear passages that teach eschatology. Let's listen in. Floating around. Ah. He's walking and talking and eating and telling stories and giving thanks and saying to his disciples, come and have breakfast. Resurrection is embodied, active, engaged, new kind of physical life in this world, the one that we call home. Resurrection is not disembodied evacuation where we have gathered to celebrate how someday we leave. We gather to celebrate that Jesus has come up through death and has started something new right here in this world, the one that we call home. So, Okay, did you see what he did there? If you have your Bibles, it's time for First Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me pull it up in my Bible. Hang on a second, I gotta get there. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm even behind on this one because, you know, he's got me searching all over the place looking for things. Verse 16 is the, uh, is the specific uh, verse that uh, we want to take a look at. And, um, but I want to make sure that I get this in context. But we do not want you to be, this is so, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died in Christ, if you would, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep or died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words." 
Now, that's what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote. Okay? Um, so, when we talk about the resurrection from the dead for us Christians, um, that we're not talking about um, a resurrected life here now. We all, if the Lord should tarry, are going to die. And so our hope in the resurrection is for when Christ returns, those of us who die prior to Christ's return, he, it says Christ will bring us back with them, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first. That's when the resurrection takes place, according to scriptures. That's not what we're hearing from Rob Bell. We're hearing something completely different, uh, an equivocation as to whether or not Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And now we've got some weird eschatological conclusion about uh, resurrection that's not drawn from the scriptures, but it's basically Rob Bell, uh, well, just inventing stuff, pulling things out of his hat, if you would. Let me back up the tape just a little bit and uh, so we can hear it in context again. Here we go. And saying to his disciples, come and have breakfast. Resurrection is embodied, active, engaged, new kind of physical life in this world, the one that we call home. Resurrection is not disembodied evacuation where we have gathered to celebrate how someday we leave. We gather to celebrate that Jesus has come up through death and has started something new right here in this world, the one that we call home. So it is physical. It is ultimately the affirmation of physical life. It is the affirmation of breakfast. It is the affirmation of flesh and bone and skin and embrace and kiss and the breaking of the bread and the forgiving of someone who's wronged you. It is rooted here. The story, the big story, according to the scriptures, is not, hey, someday we all abandon this place. The story is God has not abandoned this place. And in fact, some Okay, by the way, biblical Christianity does not teach that someday we abandon this place. Scripture tells us plainly that there is a new heaven and a new earth coming. New heaven, new earth. Human beings don't get to live as disembodied spirits for eternity. We are raised and resurrected. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 teaches clearly. And it is on the great day of Christ's return. So what is Rob Bell doing, though? He's basically trying to say that this world that we live in right now is going to get better and better and better and being transformed into the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about. We get to create the kingdom of God on earth with God. Something new has begun to put this place back together, to renew this world, to redeem this world, to restore this world, to reconcile this world, to bring heaven and earth together here. The Bible begins here and the Bible ends at the end of Revelation. God takes up residence here, a city, a garden. A... Yeah, but on a new earth, new earth. If you have your Bibles, i got to go, uh, I think it's Second Peter 3. Hang on a second here. Uh, let's see. Yeah, here it is, Second Peter chapter 3. Okay. 
Starting at verse 1, Peter says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens uh, existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the day of God, uh, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will be will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This passage absolutely contradicts what Rob Bell is saying right now. So Rob Bell took Easter Sunday as an occasion for preaching heresy. Let's continue. River, trees, buildings, you and I, Jesus, redeemed, restored, reconciled, renewed. It's about this world, the world that God loves, the world that God has not given up on. Are you with me now? So when we talk about resurrection, we are not celebrating that we're not going to get left behind. When we talk about resurrection, we are talking about the affirmation of this world, this realm, this creation, the one that we know, this beautiful, mysterious, compelling world that is in serious trouble that God has said, I'm going to rescue it and I'm going to begin with Jesus conquering death and with a tomb that's empty. So here's the deal. So what he's doing is basically creating a theology whole cloth that basically teaches that Jesus is basically the firstborn of a new creation that God's going to recreate this earth, this creation, and everything, and it's all in in Christ. And, And so this is supposedly the proof that God is recreating everything here now in contradiction to what the Apostle Peter just, you know, what we just read in uh in second peter chapter three as well as what we read in first thessalonians chapter four rob bell is basically giving you a false gospel with a false hope that's not grounded in what the bible teaches at all resurrection announces that there is a new creation bursting forth right here in the midst of this one and so as a follower of this jesus What you do is you learn to see this new creation that's bursting forth right here in the midst 
of this one. It's not about somewhere else. It's not about it's about this world and something that has begun and been inaugurated with an open tomb. He isn't here. Well, you didn't see that coming, did you? Resurrection announces that there is a new creation bursting forth right here in the midst of this one. Resurrection is an affirmation of creation. Creation is good. Bone and skin and the glass and the bread and the sun and the tree and the soil and the embrace and the kiss. It's good. And God is rescuing it from that which has distorted, decayed and destroyed it. So resurrection next declares that this world matters. What we think and feel and say matters. What we do with our bodies matters. What we create matters. Who we help matters. How we care for the earth matters. What we believe matters. Resurrection gives us the resources and a way to think about the world. You go and you do something about Haiti. You go and you are present with your neighbor who is lonely. You help that family member who needs somebody each morning to help them get go. You do this. You find the resources for it. You are inspired to keep going. Because you believe that what you do matters. Resurrection says that the things that we do to participate in this new creation will go on in God's good world forever. So God's uh, recreating this creation, starting with Jesus' resurrection. It's all about resurrection, not really about Jesus and his bodily resurrection and calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. No, you, you get to participate in God's recreating whatever through all your good deeds. Where's the forgiveness of sins? He he talked about it ever so briefly, and then poof, it was gone. You'll hear it again, though. But you got to listen carefully. The question is, are you giving your life to the kinds of things that when a new... Law, are you giving your life to the kinds of things? Are you... what? No, the question is, are you trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? and bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Creation takes over when death is gone and it is only the beautiful, good, and true that God has made. Will the things that you have given your life to, will they endure and go on in that good world that God is redeeming, restoring, and renewing that has begun with an empty tomb? Resurrection says that what you do with your life matters. When you create a piece of art, that celebrates the good, the true, and the redemptive, it will go on. When you take one of the billion people in the world who don't have access to clean water and you help them get water, that will go on. When you talk to somebody who's struggling with suicidal thoughts and you just sit with them and say, no, you matter, don't end it, stay here, stay with us, we need you. That will go on in God's good world. Resurrection announces that a new creation has begun and we are invited to take part. When will we go on, Rob? In it, here, and now, in this body, in this life, in this world, the one that God loves and is redeeming and restoring. Now, for these first Christians, resurrection then wasn't just a celebration of, hey, when you die, you keep on living. It was a celebration of a particular kind of life rooted and grounded here. That's how the story always went. 
And that's how the story was always headed. And so that- how do you explain then the Apostle Paul? How do you explain Jesus's parables about judgment and the end and destruction? Sheep and the goats, the resurrection of the body in First Thessalonians four, First uh, Corinthians fifteen, Second uh, Peter chapter three. The you know, heavens melt and we're awaiting a new heaven and a new earth. You see, when what he's doing here is basically trying to use Jesus's resurrection to cre- to basically create a whole new eschatology that gets rid of. Christ return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Some going to heaven, not to heaven, but raised to eternal life, and others to eternal damnation. That's what he's trying to get rid of. They had endless images and metaphors and pictures that the resurrection evoked in them of how to describe just what it meant that he isn't here. Notice this in one of Peter's letters. In his great mercy, Peter writes... Jesus has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. New birth. Did anybody here bring a baby today? Okay, now what is he doing here? Apparently Jesus' resurrection has given us all rebirth. So he's switched the doctrine uh, regarding being born again. For those who believe and trust in Christ, who are born again, to uh, this is now a general rebirth through Jesus' resurrection. No repentance, no faith, no forgiveness of sins. You've, you're pretty much already in. Freshly made baby. Baby that just came out. Does anybody have a baby I could borrow? Oh, right here. Okay, right here. Can I borrow your baby? Oh, Nice. What is her name? Riley. Riley? Oh, Riley. Look at you. Oh, my word. We can fly, Riley. Oh. Do you see the, the pierced ear, the pierced ears and a tattoo right there? Wow, that's awesome. Oh. How are you? Look at you. I'm just going to leave you hanging here and leave because that's all we need. How come even if you're 90 feet away and you don't even know if this, that you're still like, oh, and like girlfriend is nudging dude like, oh, oh, how come a baby like grabs us and just, oh, even dudes are like, oh, because it's, oh, is it because of possibility? Riley hasn't been beaten up by life yet. Are you with me? She hasn't been betrayed. She's only known love and provision. She hasn't experienced a cold shoulder. She hasn't had her words misunderstood. Yet Riley is a sinner in need of a savior. She hasn't had a dark night of the soul where you wonder, is there any point in going on? And so it's possibility. Is that why a child, even from 87 feet away, something within you says, okay, that's cute. Is it because, I mean, where will she go? 
What will she encounter? Think of the possibility. Think what these eyes will see. Maybe someday you can go to Michigan State and help them score points in the second half. (laughs) Just think of the possibilities. I see in a newborn child the possibility for sin. It's all there, related to Adam, under under sin, death, and the devil. It's the possibility. (laughs) Yes, it's the possibility. What will she see? What things will she encounter that if we were to see those things right now, our jaws was dropped? No way. Who will she meet? What fascinating people will she interact with? What work will she find to do with her hands? What ways will she experience and give love? There is possibility in a child. Birth, it taps into us. What would it be like to do it all over again? What would it be like to have everything before you and nothing behind you? Birth taps in to a longing every... But now I'm going to keep her. Oh, my word. Thank you. She, uh, like, she could be years later being like, I have this recurring dream as a young child. I was exposed to a traumatic situation and he never stopped talking and he never stopped talking of all the images. One of the ones the first Christians tapped into about resurrection is new birth. They said with resurrection, with death and rebirth. You can start over. This passage isn't just to babies. It's speaking of a clean slate. It's speaking of a fresh day. It's speaking of the first day of a new week of creation. Eleven years ago, we started a church. You may have heard of it. And we wanted to to help be a part of a community where people could meet the resurrected Christ, hopefully free from some of the package and obstacles and baggage that so easily get attached to the Jesus, the resurrected Jesus that we find so compelling. My my wife had this enduring image of a cross and it had all this junk on it. And that our job was to just like take all of the junk off of the cross, the stuff that was piled, the broken pieces, just to try and get it off so you could see clearly that it was a cross, a sort of enduring image that she would often speak of. We just need to get the stuff off it so you can see it clearly. Our, our hope was that it would be a place of healing, a place where you could doubt and ask whatever question, where there was lots of freedom to explore and discover and learn and grow and evolve and change and be stretched and and and. This dream, this passion was something we held very, very, very close to our hearts. And what happened right away is people came unexpectedly. We were, my wife and I were in our late 20s. We, you don't know anything when you're 28. Um, and people came and they brought their friends and, and their neighbors and their dentist and someone they met on. I mean, people came and more and more and more. And my, my training was as a, as a pastor. That's sometimes a different thing than leading a complex, large institution. And for many of us, we simply didn't know how you dealt, how do you deal with something with this many thousands of people, with this sort of structure? How do you 
run something like this so you can actually actually help serve people well. And so as the years progressed, it, it sort of got, felt like top heavy sometimes. Sometimes it felt like a like a 200 pound toddler, like young, but but huge and, and hard for it to sort of move around. There's an image I just gave you. Let me take it away. Um, <laughs> but people would often say this. It's like it appears so giant and then you find out how young it is. And there's certain things that only come with age and experience. Are you with me? I remember we would have leaders who were trying to figure out how you even organize this. And lots of things were tried that didn't work. Phone calls were not returned. Uh, how- need to remind you, this is an Easter sermon. Apparently, he's now switched the subject and he's now talking about himself and his church. How do people, if they have a, a question or a concern, how do they even communicate it? And how do we even respond? There's just when there's that much, how do you even begin to do it? I remember when a, a number of key leaders in our church left in a very concentrated period of time. And it was very, very, very hard. And I can remember other people saying, using words like implosion, like the wheels were coming off. Like by like 2005, 2006, I clearly remember periods of time where we just thought, oh, I remember having conversations with people who would say, I have been so hurt by the church that you started. It will take me so long to recover. And thinking, no, we set out to help heal, not create more hurt. I remember getting letters from people like, we are out of here. That place is so sick. And thinking, wait, 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 wait. We set out to be a place that was part of the solution, not creating more problems. By, by 2008, many of you had simply said it feels like this doesn't work at some fundamental Level And so a number of people stepped up and there was this moment of sort of we have to rethink this whole thing, the way we've been going about it. How do you do it? And key people stepped in. Um, apologies were made. I never forget going to a family's house, knocking on the door and just saying, um, I've been told that you've been hurt by our church and I'm here to apologize. And uh, there were a series of town hall meetings where our leaders, a group of leaders sat up front and and many of you apparently were there, could bring any concern, complaint, grievance, gripe, anything and just go for it, just let it out. And we have leaders who just absorbed it. And then uh, Brian Mucci and what does this have to do with Christ's resurrection from the grave? Died on the cross for our sins, raised for our justification. Hello. What has happened because of the power and authority that this teacher wields in this class is they get used to it and it starts to seem as devious and messed up as it is. It starts to seem normal. And so they each devise ways to keep their head down, to look this way when the teacher looks this way. They each figure out how to manipulate the system because you never know what the teacher is going to do or be. And it's awful. And whatever desire there was to learn and grow has been sapped out of the classroom. It's just survival. And then one day they come into class and the teacher is not there. And then the principal comes in and the principal says, the teacher will not be here today because there's going to be a new teacher. And this new teacher will be fair and will be honest 
and will care about you and will invest him or herself in you growing and learning and stretching and becoming a better kind of student. Well, if you were a student in this kind of situation, whoa, what, what, what? You would say, I don't know. That sounds too good to be true. Is it too good to be true or is it good enough to be true? The first Christians essentially said this about the way the world works. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. You have been sitting in a classroom and death has been the power and authority. There is a new head over the system and things function different. Now, what you discover quite quickly is there are students who have adjusted to the old order. They have adjusted to the old system and it's the only one they know. And so it takes a while for them to adjust to a new way of power and authority because they became habituated to the old. It seems like, no way. You mean if I work hard, it's rewarded? Whoa, this is... If I work hard, it's rewarded? New. Exactly. The announcement of resurrection is that the powers and authorities of death have been crushed and there's a new teacher, a new head, a new ruler of the system who is good, kind and beautiful. Are you with me now? And what happens is for some of us, we are so habituated to the old order. We have so figured out how to manipulate and work and dodge and weave the system that we don't even at times know how to function in a new creation. To just tell the truth and to trust and to cooperate and to celebrate without any burden of guilt or shame. I don't even know what that looks like. Jesus called disciples, students who will learn this new way. For these first Christians, the resurrection was new birth. The resurrection was new creation. The resurrection was a new system of power and authority. One not governed by death, but governed by new life. The resurrection was new freedom from debt, guilt, shame, and obligation. And then for these first Christians and for the first thousand years of church history, The dominant way of understanding resurrection, Romans chapter 6, death no longer has mastery over him. For the first thousand years of church history, the victory of life over death was the central way the cross was understood. It was understood that death could not hold him down. It was understood that the resurrection was the death of death. That something new had burst upon the scene. Resurrection. Is like a boxer. A boxer with a mean, nasty opponent. And this boxer, get, you love this, don't you? I was gonna be like all Mike Tyson and wear black boots with no socks and shorts and no shirt, but maybe some other time. If you're a boxer and You're in the ring with somebody and you're moving and you're keeping the right up to protect yourself there and you're keeping this to protect yourself here and you're moving and you get hit and you get hit hard and you get knocked down. There's a sort of, whoa. And then if you pop back up, this is unexpected. If you get hit again and you fall down, 
but you pop back up. At some point, when you've been hit enough and you pop up again, this becomes a bit of an issue for your opponent. Because your opponent is giving everything your opponent has. Your opponent is giving you your opponent's absolute hardest punch. But if the best your opponent can do is knock you over, and then you pop back up. And then, after a while, you start to taunt your opponent. Is that all you got? Is that all you got? Let me get my grandma on the phone. She has a little bit more of a... Is that all you got? Really? Hit me, hit me, hit me. Well, you haven't hit me here. Hit me. Oh, and you're knocked down, but you pop back up. Yeah, is that all you got? Is that all you got? At some point, if you're a... Great question. Is this all you got, Rob? Seriously? Opponent gives everything your opponent has. Your adversary hits you as hard as possible again, 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 and you merely pop back up and say, let's keep going. This is kind of fun. At some point... You win. You win because the worst your adversary could throw at you, you absorbed and you stood back up. Do you have anything more? Do you have anything more? Do you have anything more? This is why the scriptures say that Jesus disarms publicly the powers and authorities. They refer to the cross as the ultimate. Is that all you got? Crucifixion? That's all you got? Because I'm still standing. And so for them, the central metaphor was like a boxer who's hit again and again and again and just stands back up. And at some point, the adversary has nothing left to throw. You win. For them, for the first thousand years of church history, the resurrection was un understood primarily in terms of the victory of life over death. Death gave him the victory of life over death. How about the victory of Christ over death? This isn't even a true picture of the so-called Christus Victor model. It's hardest punch. And he stood back up. Death has no mastery over him. As they said in 1 Corinthians, where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? We might say, where, O oh death, is your left hook? Because you gave me all you got. And so this Jesus, this resurrection was a bit of a swagger, had a bit of bravado to it. It was like death could not hold him down. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Resurrection. Is new life is victory. Frederica Matthews Green says this in orthodoxy. We believe that the central meaning of the resurrection is victory. Thus, our traditional image is more vibrant and noisy. And it rings with a victorious shout. Our traditional image is more vibrant and noisy. Our traditional image is more vibrant and noisy and it rings with a victorious shout the resurrection is victory over sin death and the devil and a victory of the dark forces that enslave us despise us and wish to destroy us resurrection is like the blast of a trombone does anybody play the trombone here? Does anybody... Oh, look, this young man plays the trombone. 
this young man. Thus, our traditional image of resurrection is a bit more vibrant and noisy. It rings with a victorious shout. It's a bit like in the middle of a nap, all of a sudden hearing the burst of a trombone. Resurrection is clangy. It's noisy, it's loud, it's got edges to it, it rings in your head. Is there anybody here who plays the cymbal? Anybody, I need a volunteer, let's go. Let's go, okay, you'll do, oh, nice, okay. Take this stick, and in a moment, because it's vibrant and noisy, just whack on this thing like it's the powers of darkness itself, okay? Ready, ready to go, okay. Our traditional image is more vibrant and noisy, and it rings with a victorious shout. It's a wake-up call to the complacent, to those who are in the grip of despair, to those who have been lulled into the lie that tomorrow is just another repeat of today. Resurrection is like the piercing blow of a trombone. It's like the clashing of a cymbal. Now, does anybody here play the cowbell? Yes, right here. Let's go. Yes, cowbell. Now, do you, do you, did you study the cowbell? Do you know how to... Resurrection essentially says to the powers of darkness, more cowbell. Resurrection. Just one second. Resurrection is like the blowing of a trombone. Resurrection is like the clanging of a cymbal. Resurrection is like cowbell. <laughs> Thus, our traditional images are more vibrant and noisy. They ring with a victorious shout. We look things in the eye that previously would have paralyzed us, which would have put us into a state of catatonic, what am I going to do? But now with resurrection, we calmly look it in the eyes and we say to whatever that is, oh, excuse me, but he isn't here. All right, there's contestant number two. Worst Easter sermon of uh, 2010? What do you think? You'll have an opportunity to vote starting at the end of this week. Keep note. Let me end on this. The Apostle Paul, I think, understood Christ's resurrection from the dead very well. He was an eyewitness to Christ's resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, 
we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. The Bible doesn't teach belief in the platitude known as resurrection. Instead, it points us to the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and was raised for your justification. And the clarion call of the gospel is repent and believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We didn't hear that from Rob Bell today. We heard a um, something called resurrection that Rob Bell apparently believes in. And what he preached wasn't the biblical gospel. Sounded close to it, but it wasn't. It truly is a different gospel that he preaches. And our prayer and our prayers go out to Rob Bell as well as to the folks over at Mars Hill Bible Church. Pray that Christ would grant them repentance of their false doctrine and the forgiveness of sins for the false gospel that they believe and teach and embrace. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You can support us by visiting our website. You'll see two yellow buttons there. One says, join our crew. The other says, uh, donate. When you join our crew, it's $6.95 a month, and you get access to our Pirate Cove. And, of course, if you'd like to uh, decide the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pyre Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.